0: Previously on Back to the Future, November 12th, 1955, Doc Brown has sent Marty McFly back to 1985, thanks to a bolt of lightning from the storm in the heart of Hill Valley. As Doc runs towards the fire tire tracks to celebrate his successful experience, Marty comes running from behind, or should I say in front, Doc couldn't believe his eyes because he just sent Marty back to the future, but Marty says, I'm back from the future. Great Scott! Doc faints from what he just experienced. Welcome back to Kodo Cinema, the podcast show where I talk about movies. I'm your host, the man, the myth, the legend, Mark Kodo. This is another previous recap from last week's episode, where I, where I reviewed Back to the Future Part 2. Well... We got ourselves a concluding trilogy, folks! Because this conclusion is Back to the Future Part 3. Back to the Future Part 3 is the final installment of the Back to the Future trilogy, once again directed by Robert Zemeckis, who co-wrote the script with Bob Gale. The film came out on May 25, 1990, which marks the 30th anniversary of the third installment. The film picks up at Part 2, where Doc faints in front of Marty, who came back from the future. This time, Part 3 takes place in the Old West of 1885, where Doc Brown went to at the end of Part 2. Part science fiction and part Western, Part 3 keeps the audience wanting more for a satisfying conclusion to an amazing trilogy. The film received positive reviews from critics, with many considering to be an improvement over the sequel while having a satisfying conclusion. Now, before I go into the review, a little production history time! The Western theme for the third installment was an idea for the original film. Robert Zemeckis asked Michael J. Fox where to go back in time. He said, the Old West. Zemeckis liked the idea and used it for Part 3. The filmmakers built the 1885 of Hill Valley in Oak Park and Jamestown, California. The train sequences were filmed at Railtown 1897 State Historic Park. The film was shot back-to-back with Part 2 in 1989, bringing back most of the original cast and crew. While the scheduling for this installment was grueling because it it was a back-to-back production between Part 2 and Part 3, but the actors found the locations to be relaxing. Doc Brown's love interest Clara Clayton is played by Mary Steenbergen, who was very hesitant to be in the film after reading the script, but her kids wanted her to be in the film after loving the original. In fact, during a dance sequence, Mary Steenbergen torn a ligament in her foot during a dance sequence with Christopher Lloyd for the Hill Valley Festival. Jeez, that's gotta hurt. Don't worry, folks. Clara kicks Buford Tannen in the leg for revenge. Buford Tannen is played by Thomas F. Wilson once again. Fun fact, Thomas F. Wilson did most of his stunts for the character in this film. Western veteran actors Harry Carey Jr., Dub Taylor, and Pat Buttram play old salute old-timers. As for Pat Butran, many Western fans may remember him for his Western films, but die-hard fans will recognize him for his voice in animated Disney films. He voiced the Sheriff of Nongihan from Robin Hood, Chief from The Fox and the Hound, and one of the dogs in Aristocats. And I'm pretty sure a missing son. Alan Silvestri returns to compose the music by adding in emotion and treating the music as a character. ZZ Top also makes an appearance as well. Now we got that out of the way, it's time to saddle up and go back in time to the Old West as we conclude the Back to the Future month and trilogy as a whole. This is Back to the Future Part 3. And as always, spoiler alert. We open up to a rainy evening on November 13th, 1955, where Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, drives Doc Brown, Christopher Lloyd, back to his mansion. Inside the mansion, Doc, Marty, along with the hoverboard, and Einstein, the dog, are sleeping as a beautiful harp solo is playing in the background from composer Alan Silvestri. After a solo lullaby, Howdy Doody Time pops up on Doc's old TV screen, which woke him up. By the way, Howdy Doody Time is one of the most popular children's uh, TV shows of the 1950s. Doc turns off the TV as he picks up the microphone to record a daily recording log of how he sent Marty back in time to 1985. While Doc is talking, Marty wakes up and sees Doc do a recording blog and asks him a question. Doc turns around, gets freaked out, trips trips on the hoverboard, and lands on the organ, creating some intense organ music for a freaked out moment. (laughs) I find it funny that Doc is sitting on the organ and playing some horrifying and hellish music because... Doc couldn't believe his eyes that the other Marty came back from the future since he sent Marty back to the future. Marty tells Doc about the letter that he has got from Western Union, in the the second film, by the way. Dear Marty, if my calculations are correct, you will receive this letter immediately after you saw the DeLorean struck by lightning. Please let me assure you that I am alive and well. I have been living happily these past eight months in the year 1885. The letter keeps going on, folks, stating that the DeLorean is buried in the mines and instructing Marty not to go to 1985 or 1885. I mean, yeah, 1885, I mean, Marty and in 1955, Doc Brown decides to go to the mines and retrieve the DeLorean with a stick of with a stick of dynamite, which could have waked the dead. Doc and Marty were able to get the DeLorean out of the mines, but Einstein finds a tombstone that has Doc Brown's name on it. Marty is shocked to see the tombstone as the other Doc runs over to check it out. And my God, Marty, you are stepping on his grave. I'm talking about Doc Brown's grave from 1885. Marty takes a picture of the tombstone for evidence. The tombstone says, shot in the back by Buford Tannen over a matter of $80. The two later go to Hill Valley Library to check out Buford Mad Dog Tannen, who was a notorious gunman known for his short temper and drooling, which gave him the nickname Mad Dog. Marty also checked out the history book of the McFly family from 1885, along with a picture of Doc Brown in front of the clock. The next morning, Marty and Doc drive up to a drive-in movie theater where Marty dresses up as a cowboy from space. Well well, something out of a space western, but we'll be seeing more space westerns in The Mandalorian, and gets ready to go back in time to 1885. Marty gets into the the time machine as he goes high old silver to 1885. As Marty travels to 1885, he counters a tribe of, of Native Americans who are on the run against the cavalry. Marty reverses the time machine and hides in the cave until the pursuit is clear. One of the arrows hits the DeLorean which accidentally rips the fuel. Suddenly, a bear walks by in front of Marty which scares the living crap out of Marty and makes a run for it. The bear chases him down, but Marty throws his boots to block the bear, only for the bear to take the boots. Well, if the boot fits, Marty rolled, rolls down a hill and bangs his head on a fence. Marty's great-great-grandfather, Seamus McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, as he calls his wife Maggie McFly to fetch some water for for the hurt man. Marty wakes up to the McFly farm. McFly farm! As he sees his great-great-grandmother Maggie McFly, played by Leah Thompson, who comforts Marty after the fencing accident. Maggie asks Marty's name, but Marty hesitates because he doesn't want to review his future self. So Marty introduces himself as, you guessed it, clint eastwood maggie appreciates the name introduction by the way clint eastwood did get a special thanks towards the end of the credits by the way marty aka clint eastwood joins maggie and seamus for dinner as he talks to him about finding doc brown who is now working as a blacksmith in hill valley on top of this marty also meets his great-grandfather william mcfly as a baby The next morning, Marty walks up the railway to Hill Valley in an an amazing Old West set design. No, really, the set design for the Old West Hill Valley is amazing, which fits the time setting perfectly. Just like the first two films, Marty walks into Hill Valley, discovering the wonders and amazement of the valley frontier. Marty sees a nearby saloon and walks in for a drink, while inside... Three salute old-timers played by Western veteran actors Harry Carey Jr., Dub Taylor, and Pat Buttram, who thinks that Marty just walked in from another town that looks futuristic and makes fun of him. Marty asks a bartender for a glass of water. Everyone laughs after Marty asks for a glass of water, but the bartender suggests that he goes into uh, uh, one of the horse buckets for, for water. But Marty asks the bartender about a blacksmith until, Hey McFly, I thought I told you never to come in. You ain't Seamus McFly. You look like him though, especially with that dog ugly hat. It's Tannen, folks. Buford Mad Dog Tannen, played by Thomas F. Wilson. Marty tells Buford his name is Clint Eastwood, which Buford thought Marty is the runt of the litter. Until a bartender pours a drink for Tannen's gang, and asks about the blacksmith. The bartender says Tannen's last name that Marty recognizes it and calls him Mad Dog Tannen. Buford hated the name Mad Dog. Nobody calls me Mad Dog. Especially not especially for some dude up egg-sucking gutter trash. Tannen pulls out his gun because he wants to take out Marty, but Marty moonwalks to dodge the bullets. After a little twist... Marty steps on a loose floorboard that launches a spit can and spills out all over Tannen. Tannen and his gang pursue Marty through the heart of Hill Valley, but Buford gets the upper whip as he lassoed Marty and drags him to, to the courthouse and attempts to hang him. Out of nowhere, a mysterious man with futuristic sniper comes forward and shoots the rope, setting Marty free. Okay, uh, by the way, Michael J. Fox did pass out from... From that hanging incident during during the scene So technically that was in the final cut It turns out the mysterious man is You guessed it, Doc Brown Buford talks with Doc about the money Because Doc owes Buford $5 for the whiskey And $75 for the horse's horseshoe Reason why is because Buford flew off his horse By shooting for no reason And blames Doc for it Buford warns Doc that he'll get a bullet in his back from not paying Buford, and he rides off into the sunset. Marty gets up and reunites with the doc. Back at the barnyard, Marty shares Doc the picture of his grave, saying, Shot in the back by Buford Tannen over a matter of $8. Marty brings up the other part where Doc has a love interest named Clara Clayton. But Doc doesn't know this Clara Clayton yet. Until the mayor comes by to give Doc a letter about Clara's arrival. By the way, Doc has created a refrigerator in this scene where a small ice cube comes out of the fridge's pipe for iced tea. Marty tells Doc about hiding the DeLorean in a cave but tells him that the DeLorean has ran out of gas. This means that the fossil fuel won't be invented for another century. Doc and Marty used horse chariots to bring the DeLorean back to the barnyard and tried to use some strong stuff from the bartender as fuel. But the fuel generator blows up. Well, that sucks for no fuel. Doc is trying to find an idea how to push the DeLorean up to 88 miles per hour, but the train is one option to do. Doc asks the train locomotive, who, who has been working on the railroad, about how fast the train can go. To be fair, I... I don't remember how fast the train can go in this film, but I do remember him saying that if the train has no cargo, love a love bridge, and fire as hot as hell, then the train can hit up to 88 miles per hour. It was a different time back then, folks. S- well, speaking of a bridge, Doc and Marty went to check out an incomplete bridge which is the perfect way to do it as a fourth-dimensional idea. Doc and Marty hear a a scream as a woman who is in a runaway horse wagon. The duo saddle up to help the woman, who later turns out to be Clara Clayton, played by Mary Steenburgen. Doc helps Clara home and thanks the Doc for the rescue. Doc and Marty went back to Hill Valley and sets up a plan of how to use the locomotive to push the DeLorean up to 88 miles per hour. Doc hears a knock at the door, who could it be? Suffolk <gasps> Farland, checking out the weather experience. No, no, I'm just kidding. It's Clara Clayton with her teles- telescope. Actually, well, actually, speaking of Suffolk Farland, on a side note, there, there was a there was a another Western movie called A Million Ways to Die in the West, which was directed by Suffolk Farland. They actually made a Back to the Future joke in in the Million Ways to Die in the West because the third film. Back to the Future Part 3 took place in the Old West. So yeah. Anyway, Clara comes in with a broken telescope from the run- runaway in- accident. Doc will have it fixed in no time along with an invitation to the festival. Later that night, Doc and Marty attend the festival, got a picture with a clock, and celebrated with the band from ZZ Top. Marty tries out a shooting game where he knows how to use a gun. He learned how to use it from 7-Eleven, or something. Clara comes along to the festival as she dances with Doc. On on the other side, Buford and his western cohorts arrive in town to hunt down Doc, only to be stopped by security and the crime-hating marshal himself, Marshal James Strickland, played once again by James Tolkien, and his son. Buford has to remove his weapons before entering, which he did but he sneaks in a tiny gun in his hat to shoot down the doc. Buford breaks up the dance to finish Doc off, but Claire intervenes to stop Buford, but Buford decides to dance with Clara just to break up the shooting. And the icy on the cake, Clara kicks Buford in the leg, though. Jeez, if, if one injury is bad enough, how about another? But with Buford Mad Dog Tannen, Tannen pulls out his gun to finish Doc off only for Marty to throw an empty pie pan to deflect the bullet and flip off Doc's hat. Marty and Buford go back and forth with insults until a challenge is made from Buford to go to face off against him and Eastwood. Marshall Strickland walks in to break up the fight and the party continues. By the way, uh... This was the only time we ever see Marshall Strickland in this film because there was actually a deleted scene that was cut from the film about Marshall Strickland's fate. And I'm not going to tell you what happened, but uh, it it was pretty dark. Buford leaves with his gang to rob the the Pine City Station or Pine City Stage or something for, for the next day way to blow your cover though doc warns marty or eastwood i should say about picking a fight with buford because doc predicted his future of getting into an automobile accident the next morning marty wakes up as he practices his face off in front of a mirror with a robert de niro line are you talking to me you talking to me and a rube goldberg breakfast experiment Marty walks into town to see Doc as the two notices the tombstone from the picture. Marty soon realizes that Doc's name has been erased, but soon realizes that Marty's name may be on there the next day when going back to 1985 because because of the challenge though. Great Scott, I know this is heavy. Doc and Marty brought the DeLorean to the train tracks in the evening and Doc decides to confess Clara that he's going going back home to 1985 with Marty, Clara doesn't believe in Doc, and literally slaps him. Talk about a horrible breakup, though. Poor Doc. Doc goes to the saloon and decides to drink, probably. Marty comes in and sees Doc talking to everyone about the future with a small shot of whiskey in his hand. Doc sees Marty as he returns to his former self as he's about, he and Marty are about to catch a train right after he takes a shot of whiskey and faints. For the record, that was just one drink. Just one? I think it was first time though. Marty suggests coffee for Doc, but it's not strong enough, so what does Marty, Marty and the bartender do? Hmm, that is definitely a good question. Either A, do CPR, B, wake Doc up with water, or C, Give him some wake-up juice. If you if you answer with C, you are right. The bartender makes wake-up juice for Doc, and it pours it down in Doc's mouth. With only ten minutes remaining, ten minutes. Why do we have to do these things so quick and close? The wake-up juice help, helps wakes up Doc. He he wakes up, knowing how burning hot the wake-up juice is and dugs his head in the water. He's still out, by the way. A few minutes later, Buford rides into town to duel with Marty. Marty notices the tombstone picture has changed with with the name Clint Eastwood on it. Something's up, folks. Marty tries to back out of the fight by saying he wants to forfeit, but Buford doesn't want that. Until Doc finally awakes. Marty, Marty and Doc flee to escape, but Buford captures Doc, which forces Marty to engage in a duel. Buford f- threatens Marty to come out and fight, or the Doc gets it. And when I mean gets it, he gets the bullet. Marty has one minute to decide. At the train station, Clara boards the train to leave Hill Valley. And from behind, two salesmen from the saloon who were talking to Doc about, about the heartbroken breakup. As they were talking about it. But what they do not notice is that they're sitting right with Clara. Clara overheard the salesman's conversation and asked about Doc. And with pretty good puppy dog eyes. Because, hey, Doc has puppy dog eyes. Clara pulls an emergency brake and hops off the train to go after Doc. One minute later... Buford is about to shoot Doc, but Marty walks out like Clint Eastwood to face Buford Mad Dog Tannen. Hey, while we're at it, can we get the theme song from the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly for background music? Okay, maybe not. Alright, so Buford tells Marty to draw. Draw! Marty drops the gun, and he said, I thought we can sell this like men. But Buford shoots Marty in the chest. If you thought Marty is dead, he is not, because Marty is wearing a bulletproof vest. That's right, a bulletproof vest. Marty engages in a fistfight with, fi- with a final knockout that sends Biff to a cart full of manure. One of the marshals roll by to arrest Biff, or I mean Buford, I mean. Well, don't worry, we're going to see Biff in, Biff in the ending, though. And the one thing Buford said before, prior to his arrest, I hate manure. The tombstone in Marty's picture disappears. Yes! Plus, his tombstone was split in half by Buford. <laughs> <clears throat> Doc and Marty ride on to the runaway, runaway train for their science experiment, or, <laughs> you know, going back in time. Clara arrives to the barn for Doc but she does not see him. All she sees is a scale model of the time machine or the DeLorean and decides to ride after Doc. Marty and Doc hopped aboard the locomotive to, to train jack to train jack the train. The steamers are held at gunpoint as Marty and Doc remove the coaches from the locomotive. Doc and Marty board the locomotive to, do the, to the DeLorean along with Doc Point the train whistle. I wanted to do that my whole life! The two arrive at the DeLorean as they hook the locomotive up along with Doc's red, yellow, and green logs for speed. Marty hops inside and the locomotive begins to push the DeLorean on the railway as it travels. Clara catches up to the locomotive and the time machine and boards the train after the first log explodes. Okay, okay folks. I know the Back to the Future movies have a lot of great moments, but for action scenes... The train sequence in this movie is definitely one of the greatest action sequences in any Back to the Future film. Because having a a steam locomotive pushing the DeLorean up to 88 miles per hour in in Back to the Future Part 3 is definitely amazing. Besides, the DeLorean has no fuel, which makes it so intense because you need to find a way to push up to speed. And it definitely keeps audience- audiences on the edge of their seats. Plus, the music from Alan Silvestri in th- in this sequence is the icing on the cake. As Doc begins to board the DeLorean, another log blows up and hears the train whistle again. Who could it be? <gasps> it was Clara. She boarded the train to let Doc know that she loves him. Aww, that is so sweet. Doc wanted Clara to join the ride, but the last log in the train, train boiler explodes, causing a huge shake in the locomotive and Clara begins to fall. She is hanging on the locomotive with her dress. Marty sends out his hoverboard to Doc so he can use it to catch Clara. Doc clashes, I mean, catches Clara on the hoverboard and the two coast away from Marty and the DeLorean. 88 miles miles per hour later, the DeLorean is about to go back in time to 1985. The DeLorean disappears with Marty and the locomotive. Actually, no, scratch that. The DeLorean disappears with Marty and the locomotive falls off the incomplete bridge and crashes into the ground with an explosion. A little prediction from Michael Bay. Well, in future films, actually. (laughs) Marty returns to 1985 on the railway, but a freight train shows up and destroys the DeLorean. Well, Doc, Doc really wanted the DeLorean to be destroyed in accordance to the second film. Marty runs back to his house and sees everything is back to normal. As Marty is about to get into his brand new car. Hey, butthead, watch it, Biff. (gasps) It's Biff, folks. Biff is still at the house, thinking that Marty was someone else. Don't worry, folks. Biff is nice to Marty now. Don't worry, he's he's pretty nice in 1985 now. Marty drives over to Jennifer's house to see Jennifer, played by played by Jennifer Shue, sleeping on the front porch. Marty gives a kiss to Jennifer to wake her up, and she is happy to see him. Marty and Jennifer are riding in in the car, but Needles, played by Flea. Challenges Marty, Marty to a drag race. Uh-oh. Is Marty going to do the, the challenge? Well, Marty remembers what Doc has said to him about the challenge. Marty floored in reverse as Needles drives off, almost crashing into a Rolls Royce. Jennifer remembers the facts that, that she had from 2015 when Marty got fired from his job from Needles. And the words, you're fired on the fax paper disappears. This last moment that I'm about to tell you is probably one of the greatest send-offs in any film trilogy. Jennifer and Marty went to the train tracks to check out the wreckage of the DeLorean. All of a sudden, a time time machine steam locomotive with a brand new flux capacitor just entered 1985. Who could it be? It's Doc! Doc Brown and Clara Clayton! Marty is so excited, he thought he'd never see Doc again. But Doc had to come back for Einstein with a souvenir of Marty and Doc at the clock in 1885. Marty and Jennifer also met Doc's kids, Jules and Vern. Based off of Jules Verne. Jennifer asks Doc about the facts that she got from the future, knowing that it got erased. Doc says, your future hasn't been written yet. Doc and his family are about to set off for another adventure. Hey, Doc! Where are you going now? Back to the future? Nope. I've already been there. Doc and his family aboard the locomotive as they set off into an unknown timeline. And there you have it, folks. That is my review of Back to the Future Part 3. What do you guys think? Did I miss out on a few moments? Well... Overall, some third installments for film trilogies are more mixed when it comes to conclusions. But for Back to the Future Part 3, it is a great send-off, and it definitely is, to conclude one of the greatest trilogies of all time. While there were definitely a couple of flaws throughout the film, Back to the Future Part 3 tells an amazing story, bringing in good acting from our two main leads, character moments, and musical score from Alan Silvestri. Ever since the conclusion of the Back to the Future trilogy, an animated series and and attractions began to form throughout pop culture, knowing how famous Back to the Future is. And 30 years later, Back to the Future Part 3 is still an amazing conclusion. For the trilogy, it balances out between adult comedy, content, action, science fiction, among many, many other types of genres. Huh? which kind of makes you wonder... Kind of makes you wonder how Disney, the, the family-friendly studio, declined to distribute Back to the Future for not being family-friendly. I mean, that's true. Back to the Future does have its adult moments, but it, it is definitely a friendly film, too. And excluding Marvel and Star Wars, how family-friendly, how family-friendly is Disney with their PG-13 rated movies? Well, I, I guess Columbia doesn't have to worry about the trilogy being raunchier now. I can watch the Back to the Future trilogy all I all I want, even if I have to rewind it to see more of it. Anyway, thank you, Roberts. Thank you, Robert Zemeckis, Bob Gale, Steven Spielberg, Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, and Thomas F. Wilson for your courage, dedication, and hard work to making Back to the Future. And by the way, thank you, Alan Silvestri, for composing an iconic score to an amazing trilogy. And this concludes my Back to the Future month. Plus, this is also my last week of Kodo Cinema until school starts in August. Well, hopefully. Hopefully school will start in August. Anyway, thank you for tuning in to Kodo Cinema. I'm your host, the man, the myth, the legend, Mark Kodo. Remember to watch movies and stay positive.